You're listening to the Substandard Model. But anyway, I should stop waffling. I should stop talking. Let me just, let me just record a little bit of audio. You just say, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you thought this was a biology podcast, and I'd like to stop you right there and introduce you to this episode, which will include slightly more physics. Sure. Right. We'll see about that. So quantum consciousness, this, this whole idea was really, I mean, to be honest, even very, very early on when quantum, quantum theory was sort of formulated by you know, Bohr and people like that, there was some sort of vague suggestion at the uh, in some of their papers that this could be applied to consciousness for some reason i don't don't know why people focused on that so much but that was that was actually even very early on a proposal but no one really thought to investigate it because it seemed so so far-fetched and then roger penrose who i think probably most of you have heard of he's a he's essentially like a polymath um multidisciplinary legend he, he mm. came out with Penrose tiles and he, he mm. did loads and loads of, um, he, he'd be annoyed that the first thing I said was Penrose tiles, but he did loads of advances. And one of his advances. Well, he called... got a Nobel Prize for physics in black holes. No? Yes, he did that. He did that as well. He did a lot no, of black hole stuff. We can just mention that as his main thing. <laughs> not the right, fact we'll that he invented that. toilet paper <laughs> that doesn't lay on itself. Wow, but that's the coolest part. That's the coolest <laughs> thing he did, I think. And I think, I think most people know for that. Roger but, Penrose, some known as the guy who got that Nobel Prize, other known as <laughs> bum fresh billionaire. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he, he essentially wrote this book called The Emperor's New Mind in 1989. And I think this book is, is, is quite a stretch. You own the book? I think so. Um, I mean, this is one of the, it's one of the simultaneously one of the most heavily inspirational books and the most heavily criticized books. Um, especially for someone of his caliber. So he, he, his main argument stems from something called Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know how much people know about that, but that, that's essentially this really cool theorem, which says that one of the fundamental properties of maths or any logical system is that there are some things that are unequivocally true, but cannot be proved. Interesting. That's true in maths and it's true in any, any formal system of logic. But Penrose argues that um, some human mathematicians are able to are able to sort of surpass this and are able to prove things that shouldn't be able to be proven. And that sort of implies that we're not, we're not a formal system. And that, that implies that we have some sort of not algorithmic, not non-predictable aspect to our, to our reasoning. Essentially he's saying that there's something-based mechanics. There's something non-classical about the way we think. Ooh. And he, he, but I think he, he, a lot of people say that he sort of conflated two different meanings of computation right. in his analysis. But, but yeah, basically our brain is too weird to not be quantum is, is basically what the point of the book is. And he did this proposal of this mechanism um, or rather one of his, one of his contemporaries did called hammer off. Um, and he provided a hypothesis, which essentially gives there some chance that there could be a quantum, a quantum phenomenon, a kind of quantum phenomenon going on in the brain. That's the first thing to look for. And people spend a long time resisting this because as is the problem in biology, everything's really hot. Everything's really wet for quantum things you know you don't want a lot of heat because that's energy that disrupts quantum processes you don't want a lot of you don't want a lot of molecules don't want a lot of water you want it to be dry sterile boring in dry sterile boring places you see you get quantum processes that are really noticeable and they really dictate what happens but in biology people tend to assume that it'll just get lost lost in the uh lost in the sort of drivel that is most of biology but he had he found one system where it could it could be noticeable which is in microtubules 
you know what microtubules are? Microtubules. Uh, I mean, I can imagine it's a, it's a small tubule, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, spot fucking on. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, they're, they're part of the cytoskeleton, which is really, I really love the cytoskeleton. It's really great. It's essentially inside a cell. They have these very, very thin scaffolding tubes that go around everywhere and sort of support them. Wow. Um, and they, I mean, that's a fun fact in not itself. Yeah, I mean, no, that's like that's that's quite well known, and, and along it's along these tubes that you get things called like kinesin and things called sort of transport proteins that allow molecules to be moved around. Essentially, on these sort of like pneumatic tubes, you know how in like sci-fi films you get those huge pneumatic tubes, and you like jump in one end and you go wee, and you go to another place and you get out, and it's all like sciency, and it's like Pshoof, oh, it's like that um the what's it called. Hyper, you know, the hyper thing, the, the, yeah, like the tube the with all the air, the yeah, hyperloop. There we go. A vacuum yeah, I, tube that they fire something along it, like Mach 3, yeah. and it's faster than flight. Yeah, exactly. Like I always imagine it as like those post office tubes where you put things up and they go around stuff, and those things that are, yeah, are yeah. motor proteins. But it's nothing like that, obviously. But that's how I like to imagine it. And they, they go all around the cell and they're very useful for transport. But the thing with microtubules is that they do something called dynamic instability, which is my favorite thing ever. And it's sort of like the tube is simultaneously building itself at one end and disassembling itself at the other end. So it's that's, not a fixed that's tube. It's kind of moving, isn't it? Yeah. The, the tube itself is mobile. So it sort of builds itself out of random proteins that are floating around and it sort of self, self-assembles. And at the same time, the back end can sort of lose proteins and it can just sort of travel in space as a long tube and thereby the skeleton can move and change at will. Not like our skeleton, which is fixed in place. Uh-huh. Imagine if bones could just sort of disappear and appear in different places yeah, and yeah. allow you to change your shape. That's what, that's what it's kind of like. And in order to do this, they have to have lots of different, lots of little proteins called these, they're called dimers, made up of two proteins stuck together. And yeah. they're floating around, they're called tubulin is the name of the protein. And they're floating around all around the cytoplasm. <laughs> and then they, they form dimers and they add to the tube and they go away and they make it stable. Such now, a great these, name. I know. Like a microtubule, we're going to call it tubulin. <laughs> tubulin protein. I, I One of my first projects in, in A-level was on tubulin. And I, I got this GIF of Wikipedia. I, I essentially had to go on the dark web to access this GIF. And it's, <laughs> it's such a cool GIF, and it's really cool. Yeah. It shows, it shows that you know you're doing real science when you find yourself accessing GIFs. <laughs> <up and down. laughs> yeah, it was worth it, i got to say. Yeah. Um, but but it, inside these tubulin diamonds, there are pi electrons there are pi electron rich indole rings mm-hmm. which are these a pi electron is an electron that's sort of been delocalized and isn't really anywhere it's just sort of separated along this this mass of electron density in a ring shape and you mm-hmm. can find these in the tubulin dimers and these indole rings are separated by only two nanometers they're really close together so what uh, you have that's is about a... 20 atoms distance yeah. wow that's cool. Oh, what is an angstrom like a tenth of an nanometer? <laughs> That's exactly what it is. It's a, yeah, it's ten to the minus ten. It's kind and of cool. You that. remember what nano is from our Botox discussion, right? Ooh, remind me. Bro, it's. <laughs> I told you the ten to the minus ten, and I said the nano is ten times that. Oh, ten to the minus nine is that what you? Oh, fine. I thought that I thought you were getting at something more cool. No. <laughs> right. Cool. Anyway, anyway, you have all these delocalized electrons really close to each other, and Hammerov proposed that in these rings, the electrons are so close that they can actually become entangled with each other. They're actually close enough to be able to interact right. and create entanglement. 
and it forms well he thought it might form something called bose einstein condensate which i won't even bother explaining because it's it's so confusing but it's essentially mm-hmm. a quantum process that was the main theory of quantum consciousness for a long time that you could get right, a so this process is, in microchip fields. so you've got your tubulin which has got pi systems inside of it yep that are entangling with each other yes well that was what he proposed nice um, and 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 it looked quite good because you have loads of tubulin inside inside um inside nerve cells inside neurons they're really really reliant on tubulin because as you know they're constantly growing out and reaching for new nerve cells and making connections that requires a lot of cytoskeleton to be moving <sighs> you know a lot of tubulin uh people really thought this was this was going to go somewhere but then it was kind saying of the, the direction of which the tubulin is growing and so the direction in which the cell is pushed or yes. twisted is affected well, by a quantum process is that his argument Yes, he was, he was essentially saying that this quantum interaction lies at the heart of how nerve cells and neurons can grow and change. That implies that maybe that's, that's at the root of explanation as to why we have what seems like a quantum, a quantum mind, is what he called it. But right. again, it was kind of a waste of time explaining this because it was the first theory and probably the biggest theory, but it was kind of discredited. There's been so many people year on year trying to prove that this is wrong and they kind of have they've really not been able to gather much evidence for it since it was proposed and it's kind of gone out of fashion but it tends to be the go-to explanation for quantum consciousness because it's the first it's the og you know it's the original one it's the one that penrose kind of helped make it's a thing uh-huh i mean how many millions and billions of possible you know proteins have got situations where they've you know ended up with yeah. 20 atoms dif- distance between you know them and something else I mean, not and as many sus- as you think. And thus, really? They're, they're really, it is a really quite a tough search to find any place in biology where you could feasibly have quantum interaction. Oh, uh, because, of, because of, you know, decoherence and whatnot. Because of inter- decoherence, because of, of how hot and wet it is. Biology is yeah. really bad at it. I mean, it's messy. There, it's very, I mean, technically, there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that it's better than we think. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of processes which do rely on quantum quantum effects in biology people are essentially Bose trying to prove that those einstein condensate i mean you yeah. need clean clean fucking yeah. slates for that yeah well we need clean fucking slates for that to make it in the lab yeah. but there, there are places where you really can get quite strong into and surprisingly strong entanglement um in in biological systems just because they're quite they're sort of locked in inside proteins and that kind of negates all interactions. If they're already bonded to things, they're sort of locked in place. They're kept away from other things. They have hydrophobic interaction. If you can sort of hide inside a protein and you get quite good conditions. Right. But um, that's neither here nor there right now. I mean, there's, there's one more theory, which is, there's been a few more theories that have been talked about. And what people love doing is they love saying, this theory of quantum mind aligns really well with this theory of consciousness. This theory of this this one aligns really well with integrated information. This aligns well with global workspace. People from these different disciplines just love to sort of support each other. And if you and if you're a philosopher, you'll tend to like the the physicists who propose a theory that supports your view and vice versa. It's it's kind of quite incestuous and bad. I don't think it's a very healthy field to be honest. Right, but um, is that for monetary reasons or? No, it's not, it's not for my reasons, but the, the thing with consciousness is that you, you really get people deeply, deeply invested in their own views. Like I've noticed, like I've done... Oh, so they lose I've themselves done, in it. 
I've done a decent amount of research on consciousness, just sort of out of interest. I still don't really know anything about it, to be honest, because every single person is proposing a a view which is so isolated. There's there's no sort of there's there's not like a common ground you start at. It's not like a field that's been progressing together. Yeah. It's different lines going in completely different directions with completely yeah. different methodologies, each yeah. pro- progressing mainly led by a few certain groups and a few certain mind, a few certain people leading the way. And it's, it's really hard to like get any common ground, get any common advances, just because everyone everyone's going in different Everyone's directions. messy. And there's, you know, when studying consciousness, there's no place to start. So you kind of have to just follow it yeah. as follow any idea you have to the to as far as it goes until it completely dies, mm-hmm. and then you just move on to the next one. Which means yeah. that it's essentially like I, you get these these physical theories which completely make no sense with most theories of consciousness, but make a lot of sense with one of them. And then suddenly, once one theory gets discredited, you have ten theories getting discredited because they all rely on each other. It's really messy. Uh, but then, but, like, um, some are half discredited, so it'll be like, yeah, exactly. Maybe there's an alternate explanation for this part of it, <laughs> and this part still stands up because it's not being proven wrong by the thing that took the other one out and whatnot. So it gets really, I think, yeah, yeah. half alive. I think there's something quite unscientific about studying. I, I don't want to say this because I, I would have killed myself for saying this three years ago, but I think that there's something quite unscientific about studying consciousness just because of how it's so oh, I hard love to you. collect I data. I love you for saying that. Oh, God. Is- <laughs> I had the biggest discussion with my friends drunk on a bench about whether or not you can quantitatively study consciousness. And it ended up with being a situation with even, even if you had a giant supercomputer that could work anything out, right? It became yeah. like trust-based at that point where it's like yeah, yeah. it can produce quantitative values for conscious thoughts because like, it compiles all the numbers. It crunches everything from your brain, right? Every single neuron firing, mm-hmm. it calculates that, right? Counts it, right? Yeah. Notes it down. And it takes all of that huge data, runs it through a supercomputer and then says, this person's happy, right? How do I know that? Because <laughs> of all of this data. But even at that point, you can't, know whether the person was actually happy right yeah yeah and because we're, we're not too far out. yeah yeah and we're not clear actually on what we're thinking about ourselves like if i asked you what are you thinking about right now quantitatively tell me you'd be lost <laughs> like wait was i no, thinking of chocolate right. was i thinking of a jacuzzi what was i thinking of you know like like <laughs> was i happy sad i was kind of mixed I was kind of anxious about that other thing that I wasn't really thinking of, but I was kind of subconsciously thinking of, right? Like it's too messy to quantitatively write down. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it, it seems to attract people who who end up just being doing philosophy and not much science. The, the next mechanism, which was proposed more recently, and it's not completely debunked yet, is called kytocholaminergic. Right, okay, that was. I'll try that again. Catecholaminergic neuron electron transport. Catecholaminergic. Catecholaminergic neuron electron or CNET. CNET. Um, Could have gone with that first. CNET. Yes, yes CNET. Yeah, yeah. CNET. So CNET. it's a hypothesis. It's a hypothesized signaling mechanism in certain neurons, and that would require. In neurons. In neurons. It's a hypothesized one. So uh, neurons contain something called ferritin, 
which has mm-hmm. an iron storage protein. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of iron storage proteins. Most proteins that transfer electrons involve like a sort of iron core because it's really useful for getting oxidized and reduced. And then electrons can just move through this chain. Transition and, metal things, you know? Trans- transition metal things, exactly. And ferritin is one of these proteins. And there is evidence, well, there's an observation that electron, con- electron tunneling occurs in ferritin at room temperature and ambient conditions. Mm. So that the, it's one of these proteins where you can get quite good conditions inside it that I was talking about. And you get something called tunneling, which is a quantum mechanical process where the electron essentially just sort of crosses a hypothetical energy barrier by just not being sure of where it is in the first place. It's like, uh, I really like your way of explaining it, which made me think it's kind of like, imagine you're an electron and you're walking towards a door and then a weird... Uh, a weird uh, involuntary thought pops into your mind um, and then you think about that for a second and then you go wait am I on which side of the door and you don't realize you've walked through the door or whether you're on the other side of the door and then when you come back to your senses you're on the other side of the door but you don't really realize how you got there I hate it when that happens <laughs> yeah. that, that's it's kind of like that yeah you get that's good. lost that's in the confusion good. of your position and so you could be on the other side of the door or you could be in front of the door or you could be walking into the door perfect and imagine that happened, but the door was a protein, and on the other side was an iron, uh, an iron molecule. Uh-huh. So and it's not happens. sure whether it's oxidized or reduced. This iron molecule. Oh, it, it's more complicated than that. It sort of just tunnels through it, using the iron molecule as a way of losing energy in the way. Uh, but but um, basically, there's 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 evidence that it occur, electron tunneling, which is quantum mechanical, occurs in this protein, and this protein is found all over neurons. And a hypothesized function is essentially it's capable of integrating loads and loads of electrons simultaneously because there's you, you essentially get this huge wave function across all these proteins and it could tunnel to any of them or it's tunneling to it's it's, a, it's just basically it integrates information it allows one what would be one electron moving to one protein to extend into any electron moving into any protein across a large wave function Essentially, Wait, what, so they all become entangled. Yes. You, so you've got of. all these electrons and all of these ions and all of these proteins. It sort of entangles into one large wave function. The ability for it to tunnel into through ferritin uh-huh. m- means that you can have information on one end of a neuron affecting information on the other end of a neuron, or in mm. a different neuron, or in lots of neurons simultaneously. I had a really nice explanation of all of these quantum processes from one of my new professors, Professor, uh-huh. I shouldn't say his name, actually. Uh, he said, because we can only really measure before and after a quantum process, right? Yeah. yeah. We have no way of determining what happened in between those two, right? So if you look at it as just before, and then the after is just possible outcomes, right? Uh-huh. And then if you change the situation before, right? the percentage chance of different possible outcomes also changes. And then when you measure the after, there's a chance it's all in all of these different situations. So by putting the iron molecule in the center of that protein complex, you're just increasing the probability that an electron will end up there after, and you don't know how it got there. And that links kind of back to that idea of an electron field. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And I, I, the reason this is a more accepted theory, probably, is it does have some evidence where the microtubule theory didn't really. And the evidence is mostly about the substantia nigra. So do you know what that is? No. 
Substantia nigra is essentially it's in the middle of the brain kind of and it's this dark mass it's the dark part of the brain hence nigra and it's this place where dopamine is produced and it came right. up last time that's the place where you get parkinson's if you have neurodegenerative diseases affecting substantia nigra you can't get produce dopamine and then you get yeasty skin you smell and then you weird. get and then you smell weird when you get yeasty skin exactly but um yeah the substantia nigra is quite a well-studied part of the brain it provides dopamine and there's a lot, and there's been evidence that in the substantia nigra, you have these weird arrays of ferritin. So the protein is sort of disordered, basically. It's, it's arranged in a way that you would expect if this theory is true. And I'm not going to explain that, but um, the, the disordered arrays of ferritin, which imply that they've been tunneled through, basically, they've been found in, in substantia nigra tissue, and they support the idea of long-range electron transport. So, so is there any reason why they found them in that tissue as opposed to any other part of the brain, or is that just the one they looked at? I think that's the one they found it in. <laughs> but also, the substantial nigra is often studied because it's quite it's quite easy to see the neurons and quite it's quite well understood. It's been studied for a long time because it's quite a sort of noticeable part of the brain. Uh, is it kind it's, of like it, a, a T Rex in paleontology, like the popularity and the current knowledge of it promotes further study? Because we know so much about the T-Rex already because we've already studied it so much. It's really easy and nice to write another paper on the T-Rex because you can use prior knowledge to make an even more interesting conclusion. Yeah, that's a good, that is possible. That is kind of what it's like. But I don't want to say that because it could also be true that they looked for it in 10 parts of the brain and only found it here. So I don't want to say, I don't want to say which one because one is more generous than the other, but it could be either. I'm just saying they found it in the substantial micro. Cool. And also in the substantial nigra, there is a two possible predictions which would be made. So the original prediction, which was sort of created by looking at how dopamine travels around the brain, and that was that um, sort of the, the longest neurons wouldn't really make much difference in, in action selection, in, in, in choosing what happens in the brain. That would be based on where the dopamine was strongest. However, the CNET says, well, the longest neurons have the most possibility for tunneling, so they should be the ones that, that make the difference. Um, so the, the predictions was either the longest neuron doesn't make much difference or the longest neurons do make a difference. And it was found that actually the, longest, the longer neurons in the substantial nigra, they do code for the movement. So they do right. actually make the difference. And that's consistent with CNET. That's the prediction that CNET would say. There's not so much reason this, why... So you've got the CNET theory. Yeah. And then you've got evidence that you've got support lines it. up with it. Yes, no one would really, no one really understands why a physically longer neuron should have more of a role in coding for the movement or coding for what happens. Right. Um, but it seems that that's the case, and that implies that there's some sort of quantum mechanism. Do you know what it sounds like? It sounds like a messy field with it's a messy field. Someone who came up with a theory that lines up with the evidence, <laughs> but it's probably someone else who's also got a theory that also kind of lines up. Yes, there's only been supporting evidence so far. There's not been you can't. There's not been directly observed. Basically, yeah. it's possible to directly observe it using quantum dots, possibly. But my that dad's PhD be... was on quantum dots. Oh, lovely! Yeah, I mean, I love quantum dots. That was in my neurobiology present. Checking TVs as well. Yeah, like but, but ultra OLED or whatever. There's possibilities of this theory being being, you know, made more and more plausible as the years go on. But the thing is evidence that supports it is publicized a lot more than evidence that doesn't right because people kind of want it to be true i think and it's i'm not i'm i'm not i really want it to be true and i'm not completely convinced but it's the best one we've got at the moment Uh 
And that brings me to this recent study, which I read, which is the one that I found. And we're kind of up to date in the field. We're looking at CNET. We're looking at all these other weird fringe theories. But this this paper basically wanted to see, right, before we try and figure out the mechanism, let's just see, is there actually any evidence of anything quantum happening? And it's quite hard to figure out, well, how do you just you know just see once and for all if anything quantum is happening and it's using nmr so nmr is using mri scans they're often used to image the brain it's nuclear magnetic resonance so it looks at that's for example the hydrogen atoms in the brain which have a, a, a sort of net magnetic moment and it uses that to image parts of the brain mm-hmm. now what they did is they did this thing where they essentially removed all of the predictable signals so they went through the NMR and they used something called zero quantum coherence, where they put it through a program and they took out everything that you would usually expect from a classical mechanism. They removed all the local signals. They removed everything that you're usually looking for. And they were like, right. let's see what's left. If we see something left, if we remove everything classical. Yeah, and leave see, just the outliers. Leave just, and we see just, and we see anything. If we see any magnetic anomalies, that implies that somewhere you have spins changing. Ooh. and spins so that's that that implies that somewhere and if spins are changing that essentially is something to do with entanglement basically so when when two that's spins cool. change at different sides of the brain that implies that one of them has been one of them has been sort of discovered know, checked yeah one of them has been discovered one of them has been checked yeah. its spin has collapsed and therefore another spin has collapsed somewhere okay. else and we can get some sort of interference there, there were a I- bit can I can I paraphrase what I think you've said? Okay, please. So they've used NMR. Yeah. They're looking at spins. Mm-hmm. Right. They're expecting the mm-hmm. spins to be what the spins are. Right. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. let's say you've got these two electrons on different sides of the brain which are quantum entangled. Yes. Right. Where the relationship is that if you know the spin of one of them, then you can tell what the spin of the other one is. Right. Yes. And then then we've got let's say this protein with iron in it one of those electrons on one side of the brain goes into the iron protein and is decided that it's spin down. Sure. Yeah. And the other one is spin up. Uh, but you wouldn't have predicted that using your classical NMR situation. Right. Yes. I mean, I would say like slow down, say that's a lot of extrapolation, but essentially they've proved that if they, if they see this, if they see some kind of interference, it would prove that something quantum is happening somewhere. Not necessarily like, that two electrons are entangled or, or which two electrons are what they're doing, but just that something's changing yeah. that we can't, we can't predict through classical mechanisms. And that's what they looked for. And, 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 what, did, and what did they find? <laughs> they, they found it. They found it. Ooh. So they found these things called HEPs, which are heartbeat-evoked potentials, or at least something that resembles heartbeat-evoked potentials. So they took away everything and they found these little tiny spikes in magnetic, um, in magnetic sort of interference. And those were sort of aligned with the heartbeat. And, in- and interestingly, no, no, not bad. That, that's kind mad, of what they were- mad. Oh, mad, sorry. Yes, mad, I know, it's great. <laughs> it's kind of what they were looking for. And also, best part, if the patient was in different states of consciousness, these signals would be stronger. Okay. So you could cut, and, and it's usually quite hard to tell what state of consciousness a patient is in by imaging their brain. People yeah. have been trying to do it for years by trying to localize state the conscious center. Yeah. So people tend to like, oh, this guy's in sleep paralysis. This guy's in a coma. This guy's dead. This guy's sleeping. This guy's awake. This you guy's can tell when chest. he's dead, can't you? 
You could exactly, but that's just a sort of control, I guess. But whatever. They they look at all these brains and they're like, this person who's more conscious than him is having more light proportionally in the yeah. cingulate cortex. Therefore, the cingulate cortex is disproportionately associated with consciousness. Blah, this is blah, on blah. like a CT scan or something. Yeah, exactly. People have been doing this for years, trying to find out what part of the brain means that you're conscious, and they haven't really done it successfully. They've got some parts which are more important than others, but nothing surprising. Yeah. And it's generally quite hard, but they found that the, the HEPs, the signals that they get, which are non-classical, they're correlated with the consciousness of the patient. Ooh. So that... Is that just a, a quantitative value, though? Can you put that on a number line and it goes up and it goes down? Uh, I... Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's oh, a sort of that. there's a graph here. Honestly, this paper is extraordinarily complicated, and I kind of just read the ab. I basically read the abstract. You can understand the abstract. Talks. You're good. Abstract should be all there is. Because they also talk about. They're also not explicitly looking for. I kind of simplified it a bit because they're not explicitly looking for a quantum system. They're yeah. looking for an auxil- They're looking for something that can mediate a quantum interaction between two auxiliary quantum systems. So mm. they're, they're basically saying that if a quantum interaction was to occur, it doesn't have to be direct. One quantum thing could affect another quantum thing and that could affect something else and that could affect something classical and that could affect something quantum and that could affect something quantum over there. All you have to have is one quantum thing affecting the other. It doesn't have to be a direct entanglement. It just has to be a general connection where right. you have a feedback. Right. So they're, they're saying it just need... we don't have to prove that in, one thing entangles to something else. We just have to prove that, uh-huh. you know, entanglement matters. It's kind of like we know what classical is, right? Yeah. <laughs> this yeah, is our exactly. classical, right? And if it's not that, then we've got something. Yes. Yeah. And then, pretty and much. Then, and then how much not that is basically what they're measuring. <laughs> and so then they... the, the not that is related to conscious states and the not that is related to heartbeat. And they go, ooh. Yes. Yes, exactly. So they basically, their conclusion is our aim was to show that the brain is non classical. We assumed the brain, we, we assumed the brain wasn't, and we removed everything that said that would, that would come with a classical brain, and we still found something. And then they end up saying the last sentence is like, you know, they may, they may disprove the statement that quantum entanglement can't survive in the brain. And they imply that there is a they found experimental evidence that entanglement occurs as a part of cognitive processes and i think that one sentence Ooh. we found evidence Ooh. that entanglement creation occurs as part of cog- i think that is what penrose was looking for back in the 50s or whenever he's still it was. alive isn't he oh god is penrose still alive oh he probably yeah. is isn't he yeah. when did he when did he publish that book he's 89 mega, he's mega 89. old though 89 he is mega old. That's true, but I, I think I think if Penrose read that sentence, he would feel pretty validated because that sentence. And I think I think this paper proves that we weren't barking up the wrong tree. There is uh-huh. something going on. We just don't know what it is. And we, probably... you know, you know, on, on his Wikipedia page, the education uh-huh. section is the third one down. It's born. No, it's the second one down. It's his uh-huh. birthday and then his education. Right? And it just <laughs> says UCS is his education. Really? Yeah, it says oh, he's got it's got his universities in his alma mater section, but that's not actually in the education section. So he's a oh. UCS man. He's ninety one now. I mean, we should say he went to our school. That's why we love him so much. Yeah, UCS. There you go. This was published, and this paper was published less than twenty days ago. Boom! I've got one which is pretty recent too. 
you, are you cool to stop? Yeah, I'm cool to stop. I mean, we'll say a little goodbye. See you in the next section. See you in the next section, boys. Strap yourself in because mm. you're about to hear about something that you will hardly believe happened. Okay. This is, I thought this was kind of made up or at least exaggerated when I first looked it up. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it definitely feels like something that should be a film. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the overwhelming impression I get. Biosphere 2. That sounds do like a know, movie already. Do you know what that, do you know what that is? It's a video festival. game. It is. It does. Biosphere 2. Is that like a second layer of like, you know, lithosphere, ionosphere, stratosphere, oh. different layers, you know, Biosphere 2 is oh. going to be the second one out from the current Biosphere. Oh, it's so much better than that. So first of all, I, I, we should make it clear that there is no Biosphere 1, as far as I know. Biosphere 2 is the Biosphere. And what the Biosphere is, is a multi-million dollar project um, funded by the, like, well, funded by essentially a rich weirdo. Um, and a bunch of a bunch of organizations, and it was built in Oracle, Arizona, in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, and it basically is a massive sort of Eden Project esque glass dome, and it's about three point one four acres, so about one of the massive. biggest hectares, absolutely massive, Hundred, like thousands, tens of thousands of square meters. Um, oh, wait, maybe not, maybe not, tens of thousands of square feet. But definitely thousands of square meters, definitely kilometers across, um, which is quite incredible. It's like the Hunger Games. Yeah, it's kind of like the Hunger Games. They basically built a massive Hunger Games dome, and the the they put inside this Hunger Games dome a bit sus. seven biome areas. Again, quite Hunger Games. Seven. So they put twenty thousand square foot of rainforest. They put nine thousand square foot ocean with a coral reef. Seven, about five hundred square meter mangrove wetlands. Some savanna, some fog desert, and agricultural systems. They put they put a, a sort of habitat area. All of this they stuffed into this massive glass dome. And the only thing that connected the glass dome to the outside world was the sun that could get through the glass. But there was no oxygen transfer. There was no water coming in. There was nothing. Nothing that wasn't controlled. I mean, if I was so, as rich as he was, or they, you know, she was. Oops. I'm uh, trying to figure out who built it, actually, but it's not obvious who built it. The problem with being run by a crazy billionaire tycoon is that you're not a scientist, and that there's a lot of things that could have been avoided that went wrong. Uh, and it was, he paid it was, for scientists, because scientists are desperate for money. And I feel yeah, like there's a was, lot of biologists out there who'd be like, this is a really cool project. I'd love to be on this, you know? Especially if there's like a decent pay with it, you know. It was a it was a research facility run by Space Virus Adventures. I mean, I, I they had a lot of money and they hired a lot of people who were ecologists, who were, you know, environmental scientists to try yes, and get it did. to work. They did. They did. They did hire some people. Like it did, kind of work. But I think, listen, I'll, you'll. I think I'm hoping I'll tell the story of what happened, and then you'll understand. Take it away. Take it away. You'll understand the ins and outs. But yeah, so they finished building it in 1991. It had taken four years and it was very heavily publicized, ran into a few problems originally. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it seemed like they were ready to get some people in there. And the aim of the experiment was in order to see if we could build a closed ecosystem, which is useful. If we want to go to Mars, if we want to go to the moon, if we want to yeah. live there, 
we need to know if we can actually physically grow plants and animals in something that's completely disconnected from the outside world apart mm-hmm. from the sun and that's what they were testing and you know it was kind of just they kind of went in all guns blazing maybe it'll be a huge failure maybe it'll work but we'll probably learn something but who cares i've got so much money <laughs> exactly who cares i've got so much fucking money so they've got eight people called what well, they call them biospherians and it was basically let's chuck them in here for as long as possible and see what happens and I mean, it was launched. Oh, here it is. It was launched by billionaire philanthropist Ed Bass, um, who's yeah, he's a madman. He was a madman. Uh, he he originally thought it was going to be a refuge for nuclear war, and his friend John P. Allen was like, "That's a great idea, Ed. How about we actually don't do that and instead make it a research facility?" Refuge like, for nuclear war. Made was, Ed glass. Bass is a crazy man. Ed Bass is one of those classic, you know, rich <laughs> old American men who has too much money. <laughs> yeah. and um yeah it was built it was built well it was actually built by you know buckminster fuller the guy who invented Buckminster. Oh, man. he he, he likes helped design things. it he helped design it yeah he made it i, made bet, it I bet you he did like hexagons with pentagons in the grass yeah he did he was the dome guy very much so especially in the 90s he really Buck, pioneered buckminster fuller by the way is a it's a carbon nanotube ball Essentially, it's a molecule that's basically a football. Yeah. It's a football-shaped molecule. Good old Bucky boy. The crew of eight were someone called Jane Pointer and a bunch of her, a bunch of her friends, Rob, Roy Walford, Tabba McCallum, and someone called Abigail Ailing. They were the main main players. And essentially, they got in there and they produced eighty percent of well, eighty percent of their diet was produced by the agricultural system. Which is what they were. That was their main test. They were growing bananas, papayas, sweet potatoes, that kind of stuff. All sorts of things. They were very, very efficient, extremely efficient. And um, they also farmed some animals as well. So they had some hens, some goats, and some pigs as well. And they got some food from that as well. Um, so they were subsisting off everything they subsisted off was grown entire inside the dome. They made use of different ecosystems, the different biomes. Although they did lose weight rapidly after the experiment began, so they they lost about sixteen percent of their body weight. Um, and they they reported being quote constantly hungry, which isn't great. Um, yeah. And that and that that went on for a while. They stayed in there for a decent amount of time, actually. I think I think almost a year, or maybe even two years. Um, but on yeah, so they what is this? They left in about I think 1993 was when they finally left. But I'll get I'll get to that in a bit. But um yeah essentially they 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 were there for at least a year now the problems quickly emerged though so we they put kind of the wrong species in there if i'm honest so first of all the species of ant that wasn't supposed to be there got in called a tramp ant and it's an invasive species and they essentially took over all yeah i mean if you're building an entire ecosystem that's that small relative to global ecosystems Invasive species is a no-go. Yeah. Basically, one ant got in, and that ruined a lot of the experiments. So all the pollinating insects died, and it also became overrun with cockroaches, which is nice. It's not great, really. And once the pollinating insects died, it became very difficult for things to for, for the biomes to keep going. Yeah. One interesting... Th- also, the algae. The, the sea got quite overrun with algae as well. Um, and I think the most interesting thing, which they didn't foresee, and this was actually quite an interesting piece of research, but in the rainforest, something happened called etoliation. 
And that is when the, the branches become really bendy and weak and they sort of fall in on themselves and they can't grow very high, which means they can't get enough light and then they all right. start to die. And do you know why the branches became really bendy and weak? Why? Because there was no wind. So <sighs> in natural conditions, in natural conditions, there's a decent amount of wind and that provokes that, 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 that wind basically stimulates the plant to, to lignify its branches and produce something called stress wood. And that's only triggered by wind. And when there's no wind, you get etoliation. So they, they get kind of need wind to grow upright. And they hadn't seen that. So the plants, the rainforest didn't really grow very tall. Okay. Yeah, nature's cool. too, there's too many things you need to maintain to keep nature in an artificial situation. Exactly. Also, there, there was too much, there was too much condensation. So the desert essentially just became like, not a desert anymore. It just became really, became really wet. You can't really put a desert next to a rainforest. Sorry, yeah. And there was also a problem with reduced light levels. So because right. of the condensation, you had quite a lot of algae growing on top of the roof. Oh, so basically it just became really manky. It became like an old fish tank, basically. Oh. So, and that meant that the, when you didn't have as much light penetrating down, a lot of the soil microbes they what they were relying on is a balance between photosynthesis and respiration obviously photosynthesis produces the oxygen respiration takes in the oxygen and when there wasn't enough light you didn't have you didn't didn't have enough photosynthesis relative to the amount of respiration that was going on and that respiration mostly occurred in the soil microbes right so what happened is you had a lot of plants dying because there wasn't a lot of photosynthesis that led that led to a lot of decomposers flourishing a lot of microbes the soil was really fertile with a lot of animals and those animals were respiring so you had less and less photosynthesis more and more decomposing matter more and more microbes more and more respiration this is just hella bacteria on the floor so you hella bacteria and that actually meant that i'd say every month a quarter of a percent of oxygen would decrease in the entire system uh-huh. because you'd have slightly too much respiration for the photosynthesis. So uh-huh. the oxygen levels were decreasing throughout the mission. That was the biggest problem, as you can imagine. Well, it's just so gross. So participants... I mean, it must have smelled horrible in the end. Probably, yeah. A lot that they, they... Participants ended up experiencing sleep apnea. So do you know what that is? Uh, you, you have respiration problems, right? Yeah, basically, so there were spiritual you, problems. You wake up like choking in the night because you can't you can't breathe enough when you're sleeping. Yeah, um, and that's because the oxygen levels were too low. They couldn't really do a lot of exercise. They were becoming quite unfit because it was becoming really really hard to breathe. They were they were losing a lot of energy. They were always tired. They were quite ang- they were getting quite hostile. Relationships were breaking down yeah. at that point. It was becoming harder and harder to farm. So they ended up eating the seeds of what they were supposed to be farming. They didn't even bother putting them in the ground. They just ate the seed stocks. Yeah. Again, not great. Just leave. And and then, but they quite quickly split into factions because these people were kind of obsessive. They were, they were very. This is definitely the Hunger Games. They were very odd people. So there was one faction that sided with Pointer, and Pointer was basically saying, "It doesn't really matter if we let things in or not. It's about the research inside this ecological system. We're doing the research. We're studying what happens to these to these ecosystems. That's the main priority. It's the research. But these other guys." So who started with people, Abigail and some of her, some of her co-workers, they were of the opinion that no, we want to, we just want to let everything happen. Let everything that can go wrong, go wrong. We want to see what happens when we close it and nothing else happens. If we were on Mars, we couldn't just get some extra seeds from outside. Yeah. So the, the priority isn't the research inside the, inside the biosphere. It's the research on what happens itself. 
Yeah. They were the two schools of thought. One school we want to we want to learn every mistake now so that we can't make them again. Exactly. So Pointer was like, "Come on, guys, let's just let some more oxygen in, and then we can keep doing research." And the other guys were like, "No, I'm I'm seeing how bad this can get." Did they die, man? Like, ugh, I swear to God, if they died of ex- asphyxiation, <laughs> I'm gonna. So, well, it, when it got to a point where there was very low morale, nutrient poor diet, calorie restricted, the Abigail Ailing faction became very suspicious that the pointer group were going to secretly import food from outside and, and they got really angry. disgusting how dare you not starve with us they sort of stopped talking to each other and pointer essentially secretly she secretly contacted the outside and she secretly contacted the pr director who who contacted someone higher up um to to chris helms who was the the guy who was the ecologist yeah. and then their word word got out that one of them wanted to leave. Pointer wanted to leave. And Margaret Augustine, who was the CEO of Biospace Adventures, she basically just said, okay, Pointer, if you're the leader, kind of, so if you want to leave, you can leave. But just don't tell anyone. Just leave. Just get out of there. Yeah. And then Pointer was like, I'm not going to leave all my, all my friends to die. I'm going to stay put in here while dying. Because she basically called their bluff and said, they're not going to let me die in here. Maybe it wasn't that silly, but they're not going to let me stay in here <laughs> in this horrible conditions, knowing that I'm probably going to go to the press. They're going to instead come and get me out. And by doing that, they're going to disrupt the experiment. Yeah. So she basically said, I'm not going to sneak out. I'm going to stay in here and make them come and get me. And once they come and get me, then the ailing faction who was all, all, all fussing about you know, integrity of the experiment, they would have to give in as well because the experiment's broken. Yeah, yeah. And that's what happened. That's what happened. Eventually, the CEO said, fine, Pointer, you win. They find Katniss, you win. We'll, close, <laughs> we'll, clo- we'll end the games. Yeah, yeah. We'll come and get you. And we'll they should have televised it. Yeah, that's the same. Well, they didn't really want to go to the press because it was kind of a disaster. Everything they learned was that it was kind of down to a failing on their part. And a lot of ecologists probably could have predicted what was going to go wrong. Um, they, didn't, they, they didn't really... I don't know. They didn't really plan it very well, as was as could be expected. But why did um, they put people in it? Like they could have just not. Well, part of the point was to see if people would be okay in there. Part of the point was to see what the effect the agriculture would have if the agriculture would be effective, if it would be inefficient. Oh, buy people, right? Okay. The the, the the people is an important part because it's about colonization of other planets. That's really what they were looking for. Okay. But this isn't the end of the story. Oh. Because. Shit. On well, on April the first, nineteen ninety-four. So this is about a year after they they got out. There was the announcement of a second mission with a different group of people, a different uh-huh. crew. And in order to finance this, because they kind of run out of money, they hired Steve Bannon uh, from Bannon and Co., who was an investment banker in Beverly Hills. Do you know who Steve Bannon is, Henry? No. Steve Bannon, this was in the early 90s, and Steve Bannon was just essentially a very rich guy, and he went on to have a role in politics. He became a campaign manager for a few people and for a few Republican senators, and he was Trump's campaign manager. Oh, nice. So Steve Bannon, the Steve Bannon, who was Trump's campaign manager, was He's also associated with this project. He got Trump to presidency, so, you know. Yeah, well, he financed it, basically, and it, it, they lost... Well, they lost about 25 million in the first year, but well, they lost 25 million in, in the throughout the experiment. But anyway, 
the second mission had only just started. It was going better. The new crew were optimistic. They, they'd, they'd achieved sufficiency in reproduction like the first crew had. But then something happened. On, at 3 a.m. on April the 5th, 1994, Abigail Ailing, so you might remember from the first mission, they vandalized the project. So they snuck into the project, hearing that there was a second mission. They opened one of the airlock doors and they opened one of the emergency exits and they left them in about 15 minutes and then they smashed five panes of glass. Oh, fuck's sake, man. So Aling later said, basically, we weren't going to let it happen again. It was my responsibility to end the experiment as soon as possible. Um, it was as so that it wouldn't... Did she think it was morally wrong? Yeah, basically. It was her, she said it was her responsibility to, to prevent it from happening again. And then she said the biosphere was in an emergency state. So it was unethical to put people back in there, basically. Right. And Was it working, they, they, though, the second? The second time it hadn't, it hadn't been going on long enough to know yeah. that the, the issues hadn't really been fixed to be honest it was they ran out of money and they just got another guy to give them more money and they did the same thing again it really they did wasn't. biosphere three no no no. The, the, this was what biosphere two this is what this is what the second mission was it was just it was just you know a repeat of the same thing so yeah. Aling basically and she was of the she was in the faction that originally wanted the experiment to be kept pure you know, she she was the guys. She was part of the team who won, who were in this from the beginning, but she she'd clearly come round by then, and she basically just stopped the experiment from ever happening. Yeah, and I mean, about I mean, if you've not got enough nutrition, like your psychology is entirely dependent on your physiology. So maybe she was being screwed over by her own like lack of nutrients and you know actual state of body that screwed her psychology when she was in there to make her think of something that wasn't rational. Yeah, I mean, and then um, the mission was ended on September 6th that year because there was an abuse of the process. And it was essentially the the, the people at Space Ventures were had collapsed. They'd lost too much money. They couldn't keep going. Yeah. Um, and the former crew members who broke in and filed a lawsuit as well. So <laughs> it wasn't great. And there was a trial. Filed a lawsuit against Bannon, them. So Bannon, who was, the, who was the campaign manager, said that Abigail Alling, who was the one who, who did the... Um, sabotage she he called her a self-centered deluded young woman and a bimbo and he submitted a five-page complaint outlining the safety problems at the site and he promised well she did and then he promised to shove it down which, after which trump's manager trump's manager basically said these people who complained about the experiment are deluded and stupid They're bimbos. nice and nice these one. these ecologists who had lived and suffered in the experiment um their five-page scientific complaint was bullshit and it should be shoved down their throat and yeah and who won it, who won the well the 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 plane they had to pay the, oh my god oh fuck um so the court ruled that uh the court ruled they were so basically they had to pay each other so the company had to pay them 600 grand but they also had to pay the company 40 grand for the damages 40 grand for damages for a 25 million loss and yeah. just in, over the course of that project not to mention like the cost of building it yes it was badly managed it was it, the intentions were fine but the people behind it weren't yeah but like it you was, see the airlock system had been actually like properly done you know mm-hmm. i feel mm-hmm. like i feel like they could have sorted a lot of their problems 
Yes. One quote by Mark Cooper said that the group that built, conceived, and directed Biosphere was not a group of high-tech researchers on the cutting edge of science, but a clique of recycled theatre performers that evolved out of an authoritarian and decidedly non-scientific personality cult. Nice. So it wasn't science, apparently, according to them. Some people called it the most exciting project since, you know, Kennedy launched the moon landings and stuff like that. I mean, it but, is pretty exciting, but... but Pointer, in her memoirs, basically said that the creative team were not credential scientists, so the results were invalid. And none of the research that they carried out in the labs was ever really written up and was never used anyway. Beautiful. So it was, it was all a waste. Although people have been now turning to some of the research on coral to have a look at the effect of coral at in low oxygenated environments and stuff like that. Right. Um, but, you know, it was a failure. And it's an incredible story. And well, the history of humanity, you know, you've got to have loads of failures. You've got to have yeah. failures before you succeed. You miss every shot you don't take, Michael Jordan. <laughs> Each individual ant is kind of very stupid. No, actually, Sam, I, I just need the toilet. Oh. Pineapple eats you. The physics question is, is everything just balls? Or is there more to it? Why is he there? Why is he there? Oh, I'm getting a bit warmer these days. Maybe I should, you know, disperse my ovaries into the world. Mm-hmm. I, I do that, yeah. This is non-falsifiable. This is not science. I'm not a fan of that, I'm going to be honest. Guess I'll wait for the sun to blow up. Why are you so giggling fast and furious, honey? This John Malkovich as Snail. And then this presenter was like, can you maybe like elaborate on that? Like maybe just, just for the viewers at home, give like a layman's yeah. explanation. And the was like, I can't, no, no, I can't. And then it goes, down, burn out, that's, uh, ugh. You're listening to the Substandard Model, 